Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. everyone. It's great to see everybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I'm not Lee Mason. My name is Alan Goddard. If you're new here, I am a, a guest, as it were, this week. I'm a member of this church, and I have the privilege of being able to speak the word to us on occasion, and I'm very happy that I have a chance to do that today. So welcome if you are here for the first time, uh, if we, as we have already said that to you. And today we're going to See what God has to say to us from his word. Now, last week, if you were not here, Lee kind of started our new year by talking about the gospel, by talking about this thing that we call salvation. In other words, what is that, and how do we do that, and, and what is the nature of that? Um, and I'm going to follow up on that this week, because next week... We're going to start into a series on the nature of the church. Who are the people of God? What are our characteristics? What does God say about us? And so before that, we're taking these two weeks to kind of talk about, well, well, what, what signifies us as the people of God? How do we become the people of God? What is this salvation that we have which makes us the people of God? And so that's what we're doing today. We're going to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the nature of that salvation relationship that Lee laid out for us last week. Now, how shall I start? <clears throat> that is always the question. And I decided this week that we were going to start with one of my favorite passages in order to get to one of my favorite passages. So this is really easy for me because I have two passages today I just adore and love to talk about. And the first one was what you heard in the inspiration. It was Isaiah 61 that Lisa got up here and read. And um, I hope you're paying attention to it. We won't read the whole thing again, but remember it talked about how the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, that we get <clears throat> release from the darkness, freedom for the prisoners, that we get a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. We get a double portion. There's this idea that we have an everlasting covenant this relationship, this ongoing relationship with our God and everlasting covenant. This is a passage about salvation. It's a passage about the New Testament covenant, this relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Now we know that because when Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, went to Nazareth, he stood up in the synagogue and read this passage and said, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. He knew it was talking about him. This passage talks about that relationship that we have with God that we call salvation. And so we read that, and it was a beautiful description of what that is, of this relationship that we have. Here's my favorite part of the passage, though, that we didn't read, and that is, if you read through those first nine verses, which we skipped a couple for time, you get to verse 10, and in verse 10, you see Isaiah's response to this revelation. And this is what Isaiah said in verse 10. It'll be on the screen behind me. <clears throat> it says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isn't that great? 
Isaiah gets this revelation of this relationship with God that has not been fully revealed but comes in Christ. And after he hears it, he can't help but say, ah, I delight greatly in the Lord. It's like he's just saying, God is awesome. This is amazing. My soul rejoices in my God. He just naturally kind of explodes with this delight. Isn't delight a great word? It's one of my favorite words. Delight is a word of great and deep happiness and joy, right? I mean, we talk about delight a lot, but I feel like we don't really get it. You know, in our, in our world, we have, you know, we have a like button on Instagram or Facebook or you need double tap and the heart appears or something. That's not delight. Delight is so much deeper than that. Delight is from the soul. It comes out that there is a rejoicing, a joy that we feel in so many different ways. Delight. And that's what our main passage is about today. It's going to hang on this word, delight. So the main passage, if you want to turn to it with me, is in Psalm 149, 2 through 5. Um, and it may, on the screen, actually, there might be a typo. It might say Psalm 142, 2 through 5. That's on me. That typo was um, something I said in. It's actually Psalm 149, 2 through 5. And here's what it says. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight there's that word in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. All right. So there we are. That's where we're going to dwell today. Now, in the midst of this passage is that churchy sounding word, salvation, that I've already said several times that Lee talked about last week. Salvation. I mean, this, this kind of churchy word has been around a long time. It's been in American culture for a long time. You know, we've had the Salvation Army for many, many years. And this word, <clears throat> sometimes it just kind of gets glossed over into those who are not used to being in a church setting. It can sound kind of funny. And this salvation, what is that? Well, this is one of the words that the Bible uses to describe knowing God. And what is it exactly? Well, I mean, you would be hard-pressed to find a better definition of it than this passage in Colossians. It'll be on the screen. It describes it this way. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Great definition of salvation right there. In other words, we who are far away because of sin, far away from God, we have now been brought near, right? We who are sinful and evil, we have been forgiven. This is kind of the nature of it. This must be understood. This must apply to us, right? This is the statement of, of what salvation is. Lee preached that expertly last week. And for a lot of Christians... This is kind of where we stop thinking about salvation. Okay, that's what it is. There's the transaction. It's been accomplished. Boom. But here's the surprising thing. That is not what Psalm 149 says. Yes, I'm trying to get your attention. I said that provocatively, so you'd be like, what? Don't worry. Don't get, 
too nervous. I'm not saying that Psalm 149 says something contradictory. What I am saying, though, is it says something very different. What is salvation? Look at Psalm 149 with me again, and I want you to notice some of the words that are in this passage as it's back on the screen in front of you. Rejoice. Glad. Glad means happy, right? How about delight? How about dancing? This passage talks about dancing. It talks about singing for joy on your bed. Now, those are different sounding words than what we just read in that Colossians passage, right? Delight, rejoicing, singing, dancing. Now, what are we supposed to make about that? What are we supposed to make of that? How are we supposed to understand that? And here's my point. The reason I'm putting this passage in front of us is, is this. What I declare today that I think the Word teaches us is the essence of salvation is a delight-filled relationship with a fantastic Heavenly Father. I, I made up that sentence. I'm going to say it again because I really like it. The essence of our salvation is a delight-filled relationship with a fantastic heavenly Father. And this passage makes that clear to us in a number of ways. Just like in Isaiah, when he heard about his salvation, the response he couldn't help but have was delight. This passage kind of says the same thing. Now, why do we delight in God? We delight in God because he is delightful, okay? You know, the Bible talks about this all the time. You read these verses like Psalm 18, it says, For God, his ways are perfect. Or Psalm 17, it says, When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. There's this, this idea, when we see the beauty of God, our hearts are happy. When we see the beauty of God, we are satisfied. God is perfect. God is amazing. He's so excellent that when you see him clearly, you can't help but delight in him. And so that, that is why we delight in the Lord, it's because he's delightful, right? But Psalm 149 gives us another reason to delight in God, or maybe it explains one of the ways that God is delightful. And it's in verse 4. And it says this, For the Lord delights in his people. For the Lord delights in his people. This is one of the reasons that God is delightful. And it's very important that we understand the truth of this fact. And I, I talk about this a good bit. And I'm not sure why this is so hard for our generation, but it just seems to be because I encounter this misunderstanding all the time. I work with students. I'm a campus minister, and I see this a lot. I also... Um, interact with a number of other believers in various places around the world and missions, and I run into this all the time. In 2021 summer, um, I, uh, I had the privilege of, of going with my organization and doing missionary trainings for new missionaries that are going overseas, because I lived overseas for quite a while. And um, in 2021, we were still kind of coming out of COVID, and the decision was made. Our training had to be, here's that awful word, virtual. Ugh, I know we all shudder when we hear that word. 
But we had to do this on Zoom, and so there's like 40 people on this virtual call. And so I had to go through this training of like, how to do a virtual training or a presentation without people falling asleep. And you know, you have to learn how to use all these different features of the software and the Zoom call and the different thing. And every you know, 10 minutes, you're supposed to have the audience do an activity to make sure they're still there and all this stuff. You, you guys all did this. Well, so as I'm, I'm doing this, I have, I have, I'm teaching through um, some passages, and we're talking about this idea about delight and salvation. And um, I put a screen up that was a whiteboard, so I was just like, okay, here's a white screen, type on it, write on it. And the question I simply put at the top was, how does God feel about you? Now, I had done this before. I knew what was coming. But I think there was just something about seeing it just kind of appear on the screen in front of my eyes that was just kind of visceral. And I, I, I don't think I'll ever forget it, but I'm at a training with young missionaries, and I said, how does God feel about you? Go ahead, type some things on the screen. And I wait for a minute, and then one brave person types, he tolerates me. And another person types, tolerates me. And somebody else anonymously typed, disappointed. Another person wrote, disappointed. Another person wrote, I'm not sure he ever thinks about me. Now, this is not high school youth group I'm talking about here. This is a training of young missionaries who have sacrificed, who are taking great steps of faith to go to the world. And this is what we see. This is our perception of our relationship with God. And I just, ugh, I just wanted to scream. We have got to understand this idea that the Lord delights in his people. How does God feel about you? How does he feel about you? Let me show you. Let me tell you how God feels about you. Here's a couple of passages that talk about it. Here's one from 1 Samuel 12:22. In the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel is one of Israel's judges, and Israel decides they want a king. They want to be like all the other nations who have kings, and they kind of reject the Lord as their king and say, we want a human king. And God says, okay, I'll give you a human king. And he raises up Saul, and we all know how that turned out. And then the people, a little while later, repent, and they come back to Samuel and they say, please ask the Lord to forgive us. We were wrong to ask for a human king. And Samuel says to them, you have done all this great evil. And so he says, yes, you're right. But then he says this amazing thing. He says to them, don't worry. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. That's a great statement. The Lord will not reject you because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. There's a New Testament version of this, this verse. It's in Luke 12, 32. Jesus said it to the disciples. He said, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Pleased. Isn't that a great word? Pleased. What do you feel when you're pleased? You feel happy. You feel excited. You feel satisfied. Many of you were pleased on Monday night when the dog scored 65, right? Actually, you were probably more pleased when that Ohio State field goal kind of faded to the left a few days before, right? 
you're pleased. In other words, you liked it. It was fun, right? It made you happy. God is pleased to make you his own. You know, I work with students, and um, I often will sit down with students, and I'll get this question. Students will say, I know God loves me, but does he like me? It's a great question, but pleased. Pleased means you liked it. Yes, he likes you. Of course he likes it. What he's saying is, Jesus says, the Father is pleased. Fear not, little flock. The Lord has been pleased to give you the kingdom. In other words, he likes it. He likes having you and me as his people. That makes him happy, right? He's pleased to have that relationship with us. He likes it. Here's another passage. This is Isaiah 54. It says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded. For you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. This amazing sentence. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. Your maker is your husband. In other words, this God, this transcendent creator God who is outside of time and space and imagined them and made them be, who created everything, who is as, as other and as different from us as can be, is at the same time your spouse, the most intimate personal relationship with someone you would have. He's in covenant, just like a marriage covenant. This transcendent God, your maker, is your husband. That's how dear and close he is to us. That's the love he shares with us, right? It is amazing how many times in Scripture a marriage illustration gets used by the Lord to describe his relationship to us. This, um, this happens all the time. Here's a passage from Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. It says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you will be called, here's that word again, my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you it sounds a lot like Psalm 149 rejoicing and delight um, I get to do a lot of weddings it's just one of the things I, I love about my job and I get to go to a lot of weddings um, I, you know how we do weddings in the Western world, you know, the, the wedding is all about the bride, right? She's the star of the wedding. The groom kind of shambles up to the front and just kind of stands there waiting in his tux. It looks just like everybody else's tux. But the bride comes in in this white dress and the music plays and she comes walking down the aisle. What does everybody do? You stand up and you turn and you look at the bride as she comes because she's the star, Right? I personally like to look at the groom at that moment. Anybody else in here like that? I, I, like, I actually like to sneak a look at the groom because you know what happens to the groom often in those situations? He loses it, right? He's up there at the front. The bride is coming down, and I have seen grooms, tears just start to come down their eyes. I have seen some grooms just go like their jaw drops because they just cannot believe their bride is this beautiful. And, and sometimes they just lose it. There's just like this, this overwhelmed feeling of, I finally get to marry you. Please come marry you. It's just like everything he has dreamed. His bride is here. It's coming true, 
right? Do you know God feels that way about you? That's what the verse said. As a groom rejoices in a bride, so the Lord your God rejoices over you. I'm going to pause for just a second and let that one sink in. The Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Now, okay, a couple of um, theological doctrinal asides because I need to be a responsible preacher as we talk about this, okay? There's a couple of things we need to understand and make sure we get right. Number one, God does not delight in us because we are so delightful, like we delight in him. We are sinful. God delights in us by his sovereign choice, but it is real delight. Um, in Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, there's this verse where God says, says to the people of Israel, the Lord did not set his affection on you because you are the most numerous of all nations, for in actuality, you are the smallest of all nations on earth. But the Lord loved you and drove out nations in their God before you. It was because the Lord loved you that he did these things. If you look at that verse, it's a very strange little verse because it says, the Lord did not set his affection on you because you were so great. As a matter of fact, you are the runtiest people ever, is what he's saying. But it was because the Lord loved you that he did these things. In other words, he's saying that the reason the Lord loved you is because he loved you. He loved you because he loved you. That's literally what the verse says. This is an attribute that theologians call the freedom of God. It's this idea that God being sovereign over his own will chooses his affections and is not constrained in any decision that he would make. In other words, his love is a sovereign choice on his part to find satisfaction in us. But it is real delight and real satisfaction. We do not receive God's love because we're so great but because he's so great. The second thing we need to understand is our delight in God from this is not that we make much of God because he makes much of us. This is not a self-centered motivation in which we say, well, as long as God's all about me, I'll be all about him. No, it's not that at all. What's really happening here is we are making much of God because he is a God who deserves to be made much of. In other words, because he loves us in this way, Because he is such a God, we cannot help but delight in him. A God who would not grasp his position in heaven, but would come down to earth and empty himself and make himself nothing and die on a cross for our sin. Who loves like that? God does. And because he is such a God, that is why we delight in him. Now, this is the best news in the world because of this. If God does not delight in us because we're so great, he will not undelight in us when we're bad. (laughs) Pressure is off. Isn't that great? God will not unlove us because he doesn't love us according to our greatness. He loves us because of his greatness and his character. But the Lord delights in his people. Don't you get it? God is crazy about us. He delights in us of his own sovereign pleasure. And Psalm 149, 2 through 5 points that out. And it is very important that we understand this. Why? Because in Psalm 149, it says, Let Israel rejoice in their maker. 
Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. And then later at the last verse, it says, let them sing for joy in their beds. But why? Why do we rejoice? Why are we glad? Why do we lay in bed so happy we sing at night? Verse 4. For, in other words, because. That's the, it's in the Hebrew. It's a little conjunction, a key. For the Lord delights in his people. You know, a God who tolerates me, a God who is disappointed in me, or a God who I'm not sure ever thinks of me, it's really hard to delight in a God like that, isn't it? But good news, God isn't like that. He delights in us. And when we understand that delight, we naturally delight in him back. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the essence of salvation. A delight-filled relationship with a fantastic heavenly Father. You see, this is what we get welcomed into. That atonement, that cross, that being brought near to God. Yes, we know about the transaction, but often we stop there, but we forget. No, wait, what did the transaction bring us into? It brought us into a happy relationship filled with delight with a fantastic Heavenly Father. That's the salvation we have. That's the joy that we get. And I just don't think we can talk about that enough. Now, there's a couple of applications that we could probably come up with about this. <clears throat> and there's probably a lot that you could meditate on. Here's a couple of suggestions. When I read this and I think about it, what, one of the things that comes to mind is, um, you know, we live in a world currently in which anxiety is kind of a central pillar. I don't know if you've noticed. Um, this is especially true among those who are younger, millennials and Gen Zs, of um, which I'm barely not a part. Um, anxiety is, is something that is constantly in our news. It's something that kind of characterizes um, the hallmarks of some of our generation, as it were. This fact that the Lord delights in his people gives you something to say back to your anxiety. It gives us something to speak to it. Think about that. The God who made the universe, who is over all created things, who has all power, who is unchallenged by anything that happens on earth or in history, delights in you. He is for us. He is on our side. His eyes are on us, and he sees us. I mean, just, I don't know if he ever thinks of me. Don't you know the psalm says how many are your thoughts toward me, O God, and how vast the sum of them would I, were I to count them? They outnumber the grains of sand. And that's the Middle East. That's a lot of sand. <laughs> the God of the universe is on your side. His eyes are on us. Don't you think we could speak that back to some of the worldly anxiety that we carry around? I do. So that's one. I think another is the idea of our motivations. You know, we... Um, we often talk about service, and we often talk about how much you need to be involved in some church program, or, you know, we have lots of activities at our church that you can do. You can be in a small group, and you can be on this team, and you can be on that team, and, and we have all these things that we want to do, and then we start talking about, well, you need to share your faith with other people, and that gets people feeling clammy sometimes, and it's just like, 
There's all these things. And we can, if we're not careful, fall into being programmatic about it. We can just be like, well, okay, there's all these things I need to do. And to be a good Christian, I need this and this and this and this. And we forget, do you know why we do all those things? We do them out of delight. Because we are in a delightful relationship with a fantastic Heavenly Father. We don't do them so God will like us. And yet we often fall into that cycle of I'm going to do all these things because I want God to like me and not be upset with me. So I'm just going to keep doing more. Does that sound like the gospel to you? Don't you see? It's not. And yet we tend to become that as Christians, forgetting the idea that actually I'm in a delightful relationship with a fantastic Heavenly Father. And the reason I'm going to go do all these things is because he's so great, I just can't help it. I just want to. I just want it to overflow. That's how we should be. Now, yes, I, I admit, I am not always overflowing with emotional delight in God. I do not get up every morning and, and just feel feelings, you know, feel feelings of delight. I, there is a place for duty, and there is a place for discipline. Our souls are not perfect. This is something that we grow and cultivate and blossom in our lives over time, and it's probably a lifetime process. But we should stop sometimes and, and, and think to ourselves, why am I doing what I'm doing our service should be a response of delight. And if it's not, that should be a check on our spirit. But it should also be something we want to cultivate. It doesn't mean stop doing it, but it does mean let's cultivate more delight in our hearts. You can come up with more applications on your own, I am sure. Delight, isn't that a great word? And that is what we have with our Lord the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy in their beds. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we are your people and gathered here before you today in worship. We declare we delight in you. You are delightful. And whether our hearts are overflowing with that emotion right now or whether we are saying that in faith because of hard circumstance in our lives, we still say it as your people today. We rejoice in you. We are glad in our King. Praise you, Lord God, that you take delight in your people. We don't deserve it, and yet you do. You are such a God. We praise you and thank you for that. Lord, when we, when we see this in you, it's just amazing to us. It, it is staggering. We hardly have the words to comprehend the fact that you love us in such a way. And we worship you for being such a God, for being that kind of a loving God, for being that kind of a delightful God. We like following you. We like following a God like that, and we declare it. <clears throat> Lord, have these songs... Have this communion. Have the rest of our worship this day out of an overflow of delight from our hearts. We praise you. Amen.